Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. She drags me everywhere, man. Sometimes by the hair, man. Forgot my underwear, man. This just isn't fair, man. I don't want to go there, man. What am I doing here? Hi, Mike Reese here, and to get you ready for Thanksgiving, we're rerunning our fabulous food episode. We won't be eating any turkey this week, just horse, crickets, and guinea pigs. Mmm. Eating is a big part of travel, and I eat anything that comes my way. I had roast camel in Saudi Arabia, and I loved it. I ate horse meat in Uzbekistan, and it tasted suspiciously like Arby's. In China, every meal included a giant fish with the head sill on. My Chinese host would always say, I want the eyes! You want one? We can each have an eye! And in Ecuador, I tried their national dish, guinea pig. And these aren't some beefed-up, meat-bearing breed. They're tiny little guinea pigs, the universal class pet. The menus don't even try to hide it. They feature pictures of wide-eyed, adorable rodents imploring, How can you eat me, meester? And they've got a point. Guinea pig is tough and greasy, and there's maybe two bites of meat on the whole thing. I much preferred the agouti stew I ate in Tanzania. And agouti is also a guinea pig, but it's a honking big one. Although we're discussing food today, this is not somebody feed Phil. Sure, Phil Rosenthal and I are both Jewish sitcom writers and we're exactly the same age. But Phil visits Paris and eats gourmet meals. I go to Rwanda and eat fried grasshoppers. Phil's a grown man, he's worth $200 million. Nobody has to feed Phil. He can feed himself. I have had some truly wonderful dining experiences. In Libya, I ordered a single falafel, a falafis, from a roadside cart. The owner set out a chair, a table with tablecloth, and a bud vase with a rose in it. Then he brought me my lone falafis on a china plate with silverware, linen napkin, and a bottle of sparkling water. Total price? 72 cents. And in Peru, I discovered an entire neighborhood, six square blocks, crammed with stalls selling cotton candy. Nothing but cotton candy. (laughs) Why? Food can also tell you where you are. The nation of Turkey is a bridge between Europe and the Arab world. At one end, you have delicious Middle Eastern food like kebabs and hummus. But as you slowly travel west, the food gets worse and worse. You're heading for Bulgaria and the lousiest food in the world. Everything's a greasy stew with chunks of hot dog floating in it. We had Christmas dinner in the European end of Turkey. The hotel put out a lavish buffet that spread across three rooms and we couldn't find one thing to eat. We just drank Bulgarian champagne, which had chunks of hot dog floating in it. I am not a gourmet. I have a friend on The Simpsons who flew to Barcelona for a $900 meal that was all foam. That's not me. I had an epiphany at Applebee's. Something no one else has ever said before. I ate Applebee's chicken Caesar salad and decided this is as good as food ever has to be. Anything better is wasted on me. I love fried chicken and the best I ever had was in a 7-Eleven in South Korea. Every night I insisted we eat there. As for my wife, she eats like a horse and I mean that literally. She eats fast, 
without any real enjoyment, and it's mostly oats. She starts every day with a giant bowl of plain oatmeal, and this gives her the power to, say, run the Preakness. Remember a few years ago when everyone went on the Atkins diet and lost weight, and then everybody quit the Atkins diet and gained all the weight back plus more? Denise is the one person in America who stuck with it. She gave up bread, pasta, potatoes, and sweets. She can eat an entire bowl of gumbo and leave behind the rice. Hey, I'll bet that line would sound great if a hillbilly said it. She can eat an entire bowl of gumbo and leave behind the rice. Nice work, Clem. Thanks. Can I use your bathroom? No. Denise doesn't care about food, and this is a shame because we recently took a trip to a great eating town, Memphis. It's famous for barbecue, a food that's hard to screw up. To me, all barbecue falls into two categories, excellent and McRib. When you walk down Beale Street in Memphis, you see three restaurants in a row promising the best barbecue on earth. Across the street is one proclaiming, we're the third best barbecue on earth. It must be just awful. Cold rat meat swimming in ketchup. But there's more to Memphis than food, and so we hired a local guide to drive us around. His name was Big Stan. He was an elderly man, and by elderly, I mean three years younger than me. I tried to make conversation with Big Stan, but it wasn't working out. I told him, we had breakfast at the arcade diner where Elvis used to eat. There's a funny story about Elvis in that place. What's that? Elvis ate there. Okay. Memphis was just coming out of COVID, and we were Big Stan's first tour in a year and a half. And I'm afraid he had forgotten everything he knew about Memphis. He also forgot how to finish a sentence. Now, over here, Elvis had a job delivering. What? What did he deliver? Mail? Pizza? Babies? Come again? Stan also couldn't talk and drive at the same time. If we asked him a question, he'd come to a dead stop before answering, even if we were rolling down the highway. After two hours of this... Denise gave up on Big Stan. She took over the tour, telling him the places she wanted to visit. First stop, the Peabody, a swank hotel where ducks have lived in luxury for 80 years. Like many southern traditions, this was started by drunk white rich men. In 1939, the Peabody's manager returned from a hunting trip with a bunch of live ducks. Deeply inebriated, He thought it would be smart to leave them in the hotel's ornate lobby fountain. Since then, every morning at 11, the ducks march into the fountain. Every afternoon at 5, the ducks waddle out of the fountain, pile into an elevator, and head up to their penthouse coop. This always draws a crowd, and it's adorable. You gotta see it. Hi, Mike Reese here, and the holidays are upon us. That means that soon you're going to be stuffing your face with food you would never touch the rest of the year. I'm talking about yams with marshmallows on them. Why? How? How is that a mealtime food? And stuffing, the only food cooked inside a bird's butt. You deserve better food, and that's why you should come to Masterclass.com. They have hundreds of courses in every subject taught by the masters, including over 20 cooking classes. Classes taught by Gordon Ramsay and Wolfgang Puck. Learn how to make great food. And best of all, this holiday, give one annual membership and get one free. You can give it to someone 
who should know how to cook but doesn't. Mom, go to masterclass.com slash Mike today. That's me. That's masterclass.com slash Mike. Terms apply. For example, don't slash Mike. I'm your friend. Masterclass. Soon another problem arose with Big Stan. After 18 months out of work, he'd forgotten his way around Memphis, a city he'd spent his entire life in. Denise now was not just choosing our itinerary, she had to navigate from Google Maps. But there was no good way to steer Stan. If you told him go left and .4 miles, he'd turn left immediately. If you waited till you neared the intersection to make a turn, he'd miss it entirely. And sometimes he'd just do his own thing. Turn left at the corner. Left. Left. Why are you turning right? Come again. Memphis boasts two must-see recording studios. Their Stax Records, which had twice the number of hits that Motown had, but too many of them were from one-hit wonders you never heard of. The Dramatics, the Delphonics, the Barquets, the Marquees, and the Temprees. Three miles away is Sun Records, which did produce stars. They launched Elvis's first hit, That's Alright Mama, but then followed it up with a year of songs like Milk Cow Boogie Blues and I Forgot to Remember to Forget. Elvis left them for RCA and had 17 hits the next year. In fact, everyone left Sun Records as soon as they hit it big. Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, Johnny Cash. Memphis is a hard luck place that way. Across the state is Nashville, the fastest growing city in America. Poor Memphis is still recovering from the 2008 recession. No wonder they're the home of the blues. By the way, people who don't understand the blues think it all sounds the same. They are correct. New problems were developing between Denise and Big Stand. She couldn't understand him, and he couldn't hear her. I found myself working as interpreter. Wanna stop for a cold drink? What did he say? He said, do you want to stop for a cold drink? No, let's keep moving. What did she say? She said, no, let's keep moving. But I'm thirsty. What did he say? Denise never wanted to stop. Memphis was filled with the kind of attractions only she loved. The nation's largest gong collection. The Danny Thomas Meditation Garden. The yellow fever graves at Elmwood Cemetery. Elmwood, by the way, was a name they literally pulled out of a hat. After the dedication in 1852, they realized there were no elms in Elmwood. They had to import those from New York. By midday, Big Stan was falling apart in front of my eyes. He kept asking when we were stopping for lunch, and Denise's answer was, never. We have to get to the Museum of Chinese and Jewish Art. That's closed on Sunday. Today's Wednesday. It sure feels like Sunday. The whole point of our visit to Memphis was to see Graceland, which had just reopened after lockdown. I'd come to smirk, imagining Fat Elvis sitting in his tacky McMansion, shooting out TV sets. But Graceland isn't tacky. It's typical 70s decor, resembling the house I grew up in. It's also smaller than the house I grew up in. And my dad was not the king of rock and roll. He was the king of Central Connecticut gastroenterologists. Graceland is very modest by superstar standards. Everything Elvis was mocked for has become standard practice for performers. He played Vegas. He wore stupid sunglasses. He got fat. Bono did all those things, and people love Bono. 
By the way, Fat Elvis wasn't all that fat. I'd have to lose 10 pounds to be as skinny as Fat Elvis. Elvis won so many awards they had to build a giant museum across from Graceland to house them all. It's a remarkable life for a man born in a two-room shack. And they have a model of the place, and by Manhattan standards, that's a $2 million shack. Living in the city changes your sense of space. New Yorkers visiting the Anne Frank house always go, What would I do with all this room? Your tour of Graceland ends in the backyard, where you see the graves of Elvis and his parents. I'd come there to mock and left the place sobbing. Luckily, I was able to do plenty of mocking at our next stop, Mud Island. The mud part is correct, it's just a bunch of silt and gravel, but Mud Island is no island. It's a peninsula jutting out from downtown Memphis straight into the Mississippi. It was originally called City Island, but in 1952 they changed it to Mud Island. This would be the first of many bad and baffling decisions. In 1982, developers put a five-story concrete building on Mud Island, destroying whatever beauty the place had. It's done in the brutalist architecture style that people hated then and still hate today. It houses the Mississippi River Museum, the kind of place that school children are dragged to as punishment. The only people that ever went there willingly are my wife and the burglars who robbed it in 2020. They made off with $50,000 in artifacts and they've never been caught. The true boondoggle of Mud Island Park is their half mile long model of the Mississippi River. It's built 50 feet from an even bigger Mississippi, the actual Mississippi, so what's the point? The model is a giant, twisting, branching scar gashed into the pavement. It's a 3,000 foot long tripping hazard. And it must have cost a fortune to build something this big and ugly. It would cost even more to maintain it, if they maintained it, but they don't. Mud Island also boasts an amphitheater that's been closed since 2018. The place couldn't be more Simpson-y if it had a monorail. Oh wait, it does have a monorail. That's closed too. The biggest problem with Mud Island is that it was Memphis trying to be like other cities. Memphis is unique, a warm, welcoming, artistic place that you really have to see for yourself. We did it all, but by the end of the day, Big Stan was hungry, thirsty, and uttering nonsense syllables. Car. Sparse. Glamp. Poor guy, I married my wife. He didn't have to put up with this. He was driving erratically, drifting to the wrong side of the road, plowing straight into oncoming traffic. Maybe it was exhaustion, maybe it was low blood sugar. More likely, he was trying to commit suicide and take us with him. We knew it was time to stop when he got lost taking us to the old Johnny Cash house. This was troubling because Big Stan lived in the old Johnny Cash house. I called an end to the day like it was a boxing match where Big Stan was out on his feet. I gave him a huge tip, but what do you pay a man in whom you've induced the psychotic break? That night we finally did get to eat. Denise and I had dinner at Gus's world famous fried chicken. It was delicious, but not as good as that 7-Eleven in South Korea. What Am I Doing Here is written and performed by Mike Reese and produced by Josh Perillo, featuring Tommy Wynn, with Denise Rees as herself. Additional voices by Trevor Morris, Mike's Funny Doorman.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.